Hello, and welcome to the Craft Brewed Music Podcast, music interviews for serious listeners. You may have heard of our curated music discovery app. The podcast lets us dig deeper and get to know the creators of that music, as well as others that will broaden your horizons. I'm Brian Horner, founder and curator of Craft Brewed Music, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Aaron Stamen, a Craft Brewed Music artist. Gregory Page is a craft brewed music artist and a singer-songwriter that you're going to fall in love with immediately, I think. He's toured all over the world for years on his own, as well as with his longtime friend and collaborator, Jason Mraz. And his latest album, One Hell of a Memory, is out on Jason's label, Intera Bang Records. We're going to start with a little cross-section. California, here I come. Your skies of blue shine on this midnight sun. Two of a kind under the sun. In life you'll find there's never just one. A gaggle of geese, a murder of crows, a swarm of bees and a crash of rhinos, a school of fish and a pack of... Day night, and I'm all alone out on the town. I'm feeling blue. It's only when you're not here, everything's so unclear, like a ghost on a sunny day. been called a time traveler and that seems like part of the explanation but help us understand the the composition of Gregory Page well that's a a, a wonderfully complicated question I'll try to <laughs> condense down to the next four and a half hours um, and the the long the long story short would be um, I'm a I'm a lover of many different styles of music and when I go into a, a record shop there's just not one section that I can find myself just spending the afternoon in. I'm, I'm pretty much all over the map, and that is kind of the basis of, of a lot of my genre-bending styles of music. It seems like, uh, unlike other songwriters who may uh, dabble in a particular style that represents an era, you seem to uh, really capture the, uh, uh, the idiom completely for, for, each, um, for each of the styles that you, you seem to dwell in. Uh, you either fully embrace a, a Parisian street cafe, um, or a uh, you know a an Appalachian um, you know bluegrass band with uh, with a with a vocalist. Um, 
and it's uh, instead of like blending elements into all in one style, you seem to really uh, choose choose a specific lane when you uh, when you set on a uh, a setting for your uh, for your tune. Well, that's high praise, Aaron. Thank you. Um, I'm only scratching at, at, at music that I that I love to to try to kind of feel like what it would be like to perhaps, you know, be immersed into. Um, you know, I I spend a lot of time in Paris, and so that style of music was very easy for me to kind of manifest because of the the sights and the sounds and the and the feeling of being there. Um, I've never been to the Appalachian Mountains, um, but I've heard a lot of music from that part of the world. And and uh, um, I didn't grow up in, in in America. I grew up in London, um, and my parents were jazz musicians, professional musicians that traveled and, and toured around Europe. And and so I grew up with jazz mostly being played in the house. You know, the likes of Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, and Eric Dolphy. Eric Dolphy, that's uh, that's uh, that's immediately getting into uh, unusual territory, even in the jazz idiom. Oh yeah, that was the kind of record that would come out probably like after midnight. I think <laughs> that would be <laughs> a later night experience. Um, and uh, like I said, you know, my mother was in an all-girl group in London in the '60s called the Beat Chicks, and they performed opening for the Beatles in August '65, and. Wow. My father was a, a gigging musician around London in, in the 70s. Yeah, it was his life. He would be gone at night and sleeping all day. And I remember as a kid just having to tiptoe around all day because he was asleep. You know, you couldn't wake him. So um, that was kind of the household that I grew up with. And then my grandfather, my mother's father, my grandfather David Page was a master, Ellen Piper. He wouldn't call himself a master, but he was certainly one of the one of the um, earliest um, recorded Ilan Pipers in the 1920s. music also was played a big part in the house and as can well. Can you describe for our listeners what an illin pipe is? Illin, um, I think in, in Gaelic is elbow. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bagpipe per se, but it's not um, a, a bagpipe that you blow into. The, the, the billows come from the elbow. It's a very beautiful, haunting um, melody uh, that you can, that you can find on that instrument. And I have had the good fortune to work with a gentleman by the name of Eric Riggler, who, um, did the soundtrack to, or a lot of the soundtrack to Braveheart and to the Titanic, and he's he is certainly a, an incredible Ilan Piper. Shines 
over fields of green across an ocean deep hand in hand and we are side by side wise is the one who knows love is a wild rose the music of the yellow pipe is something you were just as likely to hear as a child as uh, Miles Davis and Eric Dolphy? Was that also part of your uh, sonic uh, sphere you were living in? Yeah. Now, this wasn't music when I was a kid that I enjoyed. <laughs> this, was, <laughs> this was just music that was being performed, you know, live in, in the house with all of the friends that were coming over. Um, and uh, I myself, as a, as a, as a 10-year-old kid growing up in North London, you know, were, was in my bedroom listening to the likes of Queen. And this, this was, this was my, my music. And, and I remember when I was just about 10 and I asked my mother if, if she would buy me a guitar. I, I really felt like I wanted to play the guitar and um, because uh, I was uh, just enamored by um, the Queen and, and, and the likes of Led Zeppelin. And uh, I wanted to be a rock and roll guitarist. And so she said, well, if I'm buying you a guitar, love, I'm going to buy you a classical guitar. And I said, no, that doesn't count. I don't want to play. You can't sit down and rock. a real guitar. No, I want a real guitar. And she said, no, if you're going to play guitar, um, this is... This is how we're going to do it. And so the only way that I was able to get a guitar was to agree that I would take classical guitar lessons, which I did. And um, my mother would drive me across town into Brixton every Wednesday where I would take guitar lessons from this woman um, who I was just deeply and fallen madly in, in, in childhood love with. And so the only reason that I actually ever pursued playing classical guitar was because I had the, the ability to, to be dropped off at this woman's house um, every Wednesday. And she, her name was Sue Court. And she just wore these flowing dresses, a braless dress with what she was smoking, this rolled, funny smelling cigarette, you know, and <laughs> it was just a magical place that I would go to. And I would, I would be rehearsing, you know, my little classical pieces just to impress her because I thought that I would I was going to marry this woman and we were going to be together forever, you know, and that was my main impetus to wanting to be the greatest classical guitar player I ever could because of this giant crush that I had on this, wow. on this woman, you know, and my mates would be like, Hey, we're going to go play a soccer match. And I'd be like, no, I got a recital. I can't, <laughs> I'm learning Lagrima. I've got it. You know, what are you talking about? And, and so, uh, yeah, that was. Uh, so even as a child, a... you see, you seem to have hit him on uh, upon the fundamentals of the musician's life, which is you get to sleep all day, uh, <laughs> and it's all about impressing girls. That is exactly right. Yeah, it's, That's, it's, it's good to learn yeah. those lessons early. You get it at a very early age, and, and throughout um, the two years that I was studying under Sue Court, and you know, I became quite a, a, a kind of a young bright star for all of her pupils so much so that she presented me um, an opportunity to to give a recital in front of um, some friends and, and family and, and people that she knew and, and gathered around because she was so proud of the two years that I had spent there that she put together a recital and this kind of accumulated into a, into a really big crossroads in, in my life because I had never performed in front of anybody except for Sue Court and my mother, who would 
kind of drop in to make sure that I, I wasn't playing Stairway to Heaven, you know, on my nylon <laughs> string guitar. Like, so she would just make sure that I was, you know, in full compliance with what, you know, Sue had sent me out to, to, to learn. And, and uh, so when she came in, I was certainly deep in my Julian Bream songs. And then when she would leave, I would, you know, launch into some Pink Floyd song. But um, yeah, so Sue had organized a recital and I didn't think much of it, actually. I, I had been very confident and very prepared. And the day came where I was to play for people. And that was the, the beginning of the end, uh, to be quite honest with you. Um, not many people know this. I was, it was the, the moment of stage fright when I realized that there were eyes looking at me. I just didn't know what to do. I hadn't been prepared for it. I didn't even think much about it. And there were just people smiling at me and people not smiling, waiting to hear what I was going to play. And I can remember distinctly looking down at the neck of the guitar, thinking, where do my fingers go? And that moment of adrenaline that I had never experienced before. And this was stage fright, like stage fright memory number one. You know, that was kind of the earliest memory that I had of of it. And I I froze. I literally couldn't, couldn't play. And eventually... I uh, held back the tears and Sue Court politely came up and kind of explained that this was Gregory's very first performance. And, you know, she didn't prepare me to think about actually a performance. I thought I was just going to play. And anyway, so when I got home that night, I looked at this guitar with so much hatred, <laughs> this poor little classical guitar that my mom had bought. And, and I thought, I, I would just want to wrap this guitar around a telephone pole. I never, ever want to play or touch that thing ever again. And um, I figured if, if I did do something very dramatic like that, that my mom would hear, hear the, the crashing guitar against the wall, you know. So I just very quietly dissembled it. I took it apart. <laughs> I took it all apart, all the pieces that you could remove from the guitar. And then I simply, now remember, I'm 12 years old. I yeah. just simply jumped on it and I snapped the neck. Like, so it was unplayable. And I put it under my bed, and then I made a whole bunch of excuses where the guitar was for the next few months. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I've never told that story before. And wow. thus began the career of Gregory Page. <laughs> that yeah. was the earliest moment of a rock and roll classical right. guitar player. Your, your, your therapist really needs to hear this story. There's, just, there's a, lot of, a lot of stuff to unpack here. That's uh, funny. So from a guitar standpoint, and actually both of you could speak to this as guitarists who are... Uh, have studied classically and who are both um, re- truly amazing finger pickers. Is was the some of that classical training uh, what shaped the way that you went on to play later? I've been swimming up a river that can swallow me whole. I've been clinging to a dream that keeps me afloat I'm dark as the moon bright as the sun in a storm it's hard to keep your head on without question Brian yeah there was I mean a huge gap decade plus until I ever picked up another guitar that was a whole other why I didn't come when we came to America I did not bring a guitar I had no interest in music. I wasn't, I wasn't not thinking about the guitar. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, of course, much later on when I decided that I, I I had a steel string guitar that was given to me, um, that right hand, you know, was, was there. 
it was very much still still awake you know so going back to when you did come to america what when did you make that transition you know away from the classical thing and toward the music that you were in love with well i remember at so at 13 i was hearing rumbles down in the down in the uh, the living room of the family gathering about moving to america i'd heard rumors that we were moving and i was not having it i was not ready to leave you know this dark rainy cold <laughs> city you know it wasn't it wasn't anything that i had a dream about i never i never i i, I never really knew anything about america and i I never really, uh, I didn't have that dream like my family did. And so when I made my my case to that I was not coming, if you were leaving, I am not coming. Um, and at 13, what choice would I have had? Mm -hmm. That They were very diplomatic in saying, well, we're just going on a holiday and we're coming right back. And I thought, <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you know, 40 plus years later, this long holiday is never, I don't think, <laughs> I, I think, I don't think I'll go back. Although I have been back. Um, twice since leaving in 1976, we got on a, a, a British um, British Airways jumbo jet and came to California. And uh, but I went back in 1987, and then I went back in 2013. Uh, I wanted to to kind of go back uh, to the uh, the Celtic music, which it sounds like uh, you had uh, rejected as something that was in the house, but not what you were into at the time. But there's, there certainly came a point where uh, you, you embrace this music again. Yes, that's a very easy question to answer because I know exactly the night that that, that fire was ignited inside of me. Um, I've had the good fortune to become friends with a, with a famous actor by the name of John C. Riley, who is also an incredible musician, uh, singer, and we were doing a John Riley and Friends run of shows, and we had we had been booked into a Fargo theater. And for some reason, I just decided that I wanted to end my set, which I was not doing Celtic music at the time. I, I wanted to end it with a with an Irish song called "The Parting Glass." And after the show, John came up to me with tears in his eyes just really encouraging me to to do more of that and then he handed me a live uh, Clancy Brothers live album and that kind of set me on the path to re kind of reignite that fire that had always been inside of me but I had just ignored it you know wow I I like any story that starts with so I was in Fargo with John C. Riley. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a good that's a good setup all the money that e'er I had, I spent it in good company. And all the harm I've ever done, alas, it was to none but me. And all I've done for want of wit, to memory now I can't recall. So fill to me the parting glass. Good night and joy be with you all. So we've checked off a couple of the styles listed uh, as far as understanding how, mm. how they got there. Um, you know, kind of take us through, if you can, what brought, it, brought these things together. Well, I feel like the, 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 the real... You know, the magnet for me being able to kind of make sense of any of this stuff really was a gentleman who became my musical advisor, 
uh, a musicologist, a historian, uh, a, a songwriter, a musician, uh, just a, a Renaissance man who owned a record shop here in San Diego, and he opened it with his wife, Virginia. Him and Lou Curtis, Lou Curtis and Virginia Curtis opened Folk Arts Rare Records. And even long before I came to San Diego, this was a record shop that that Tom Waits would 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 frequent a lot, um, and and credited Lou for for a lot of you know discovery of of the great music that Lou would play, for the likes of Tom Waits and Jack Tempshin and, and a lot of the musicians that kind of that kind of ran around San Diego in the in the in the in the late sixties early seventies you know, so Lou was his record shop was a place that I just came to know in the early 1990s. And then once I knew about it, if anybody needed to know where Gregory was and they couldn't find him and he wasn't at home, they could bet that he was at the record shop. I would show up at when Lou would get there and I would leave when Lou would lock the door. I mean, it was it was like my school. It was my university to, to be there around this man who would play me records from Al Bowley, the great English crooner, you know, to to the likes of Putney Dandridge or or some of the little known, you know, blues musicians. His 78 record collection was just infinite. I mean, it was incredible. And that was where I really cut my teeth on learning and getting an education in, in, in all kinds of different music. And did, uh, did your relationship with uh, that, what we're referring to as kind of... Uh... Parisian uh, street cafe music. Is that something that came out of that listening or was that something that came came later for you? So that story takes a, takes a, a left turn um, and it was an extraordinary uh, um, fork in the road, if, if, if you will, for me because when I was in my late 20s, and I wasn't playing music in my, in my late 20s, um, I was going to be a veterinarian. I was fascinated with birds, and I was studying ornithology, and that was kind of what I had set my sights on for, for the future. Um, and I, was, I got home from work, and, and my mother was there at the house, and my mom told me quite nonchalantly but very emotionally that the man who she married who I grew up believing was my father, was not my father. And the man who was my father was an Armenian musician who she had fallen in love with while they were traveling around playing music together in the 60s. And so she had no contact and she had never been able to tell him that, you know, that she had gotten pregnant and never was able to get a telegram through. So I spent, you know, 15 years searching for this man um, throughout the world and you know and then the internet kind of caught up and I'm kind of condensing it all down but eventually I found him living in the center of Paris and so when I did contact him and he sent me a, a flight to come out and visit him uh, that was my beginning of you know my love affair with uh, discovering the beauty of Paris and is he still uh, at that point was he still a musician no. So my father had um, been in, a, in an awful car accident, actually coming home from a gig. He was uh, not expected to live throughout this accident. And that kind of just his, his life and path totally changed in that moment. And, and he, uh, he, his career changed when he was able to recuperate, which was many, many, many years. His, his, he was just incredible. It was a miracle that, that he survived. And, and, uh, and so, but we share the same name. Uh, my mom named me Gregory and, and his name was Gregory. So it was just a remarkable 
it was as if I had won the lottery. I mean, I, I feel that was probably the closest feeling I would ever have to feeling that you have just struck the biggest gold. You've had the best fortune to, to have been able to find not just, you know, your, your father, but this particular man is, is uh, wow. I just, uh, we were very close for the, for the time that, that we had together. He was uh, very remarkably important influential and and very you know although he wasn't in the music business for for many many decades you know he was always trying to help and figure out brainstorming ways on how we were able to try to get some of my recordings out to other people and he was still trying to get involved within trying to get his son you know noticed which i and uh, and i had written um, an album called love made me drunk which i had walked around the streets of paris and i had walked around the streets of north and uh, normandy and north France and and uh, I recorded this album, and then so he was very much trying to help get those recordings heard and and noticed. You know, does that reflect a style of music that he loved? Well, you know, again, my father' uh, record collection was mostly at that point classical and opera, um, but there was a nostalgic sense of that particular album that I know that he he loved very much. He loved accordion and he loved the the street buskers that were literally outside of the house i mean some of those melodies were just for me sitting in front of an accordion player sitting outside on the sidewalk and i was just like you know it was so easy to write melodies when you're in such a beautiful city you know about a connection to the Armenian music heritage and the music of the uh, Anatolian Peninsula? Was that something that was um, a, a native um, sensibility for him that, that he was able to impart in some way? Yeah, I appreciate you asking that question because it was very important. The, the, the heritage and the history and, and the stories of, of as if every Armenian family has the story of, of how, you know, the, the family is where they're at with the diaspora. And my family had moved from Armenia um, into Cairo, where my father was born in, in Egypt. But he held strong to, to, to the culture and to the art and to the music and to the language. 
Um, and uh, so, yeah, he played me Armenian music and shared with me the duduk flute and all these instruments that I had never known or heard before. And uh, boy, that just has ignited. It's, it's ignited something inside of me that I still haven't yet been able to process as far as being able to uh, write music like that although i can tell you that i've written you know a handful of different melodies i wouldn't know i'm not in a, a armenian community where i can just call up you know i just don't have that community of, of armenian musicians around me at the moment that i would be able to facilitate this burning dream of being able to record one day that that album that i know is on the horizon i hear it it's out mm -hmm. there and it's just a matter of time until i get there we're going to take a quick intermission for a word from our sponsor, the Craft Brood Music app, a curated music discovery app that streams music for serious listeners. Sometimes we hear that people want to hear more of the songs we play on the podcast. To hear more Craft Brood music, download the Craft Brood Music app from the App Store or Google Play and get a free two-week trial. We'll help you discover music off the beaten path so that you become the person your friends turn to for recommendations, and we split our income with the artists. Craft Brood Music, the music discovery app for serious listeners. To hear samples and find out more about us, visit craftbroodmusic.com. Going back to the, uh, the notion of, of heritage, uh, you grew up with uh, a, a knowledge of your, uh, of your, Irish, um, your Irish heritage, and you have a, uh, a song that, uh, that um, memorializes your your grandmother and uh, a relative who was uh, involved in the uh, the Easter Rising in in Dublin, the, the Ballad of Bridget Healy. And um, I'm curious, you know, you, you find out later that uh, you're uh, a descendant of an Armenian diasporan who escaped um, escaped the Ottoman Empire uh, during World War One, and you're you kind of belong to these two lineages uh, that have histories marked by, by tragedy and kind of being the underdog, um, both the Irish experience and the Armenian experience. Is this something that you uh, identify with? You grow up with stories of your family around you, but as a kid, you can't really process the actual depth of, of what it is. My grandmother would recount stories of what it was like as a girl growing up during the Rising. And my grandfather had a completely different style of stories, um, and his were more based around the music, and 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 my grandmother was was more based in the political side of it, um, and so. But I never really processed this until much, much, much later in my life, when I was, when I was, um, when my grandmother was coming to the end of her life, when she would tell these stories, I, I started to really pay attention and. And I didn't think that I could write a song about them. I felt like it was kind of too personal, and I, I, I didn't know how to do it. Um, but I, I had tried a few times to, to tell her story in song because it would be a way for me to, to keep the story alive and, and to share that particular little chapter, one family's chapter, um, with anybody that would be in an audience that would be interested in listening to it. And... Uh, so after my third attempt at writing the ballad of Bridget Healy, I, I felt like I had a clumsy effort in a way to represent it. And um, 
So I, you know, I haven't had a chance to go out and play these songs due to the situation as far as where the world is. And so I am very curious to get out there and, and uh, to play that song in particular and, and, and to tell the story and, and to see how it will be received, you know. similar stories from your father's side of the family? I do, I do. And that was stories that were told to me when I was in Armenia. Um, my aunt, my, my father's sister, Marie, who lives in the center of Yerevan, would tell these stories um, at night. And, oh gosh, I mean, you just, you're just trying to listen and, and, and wipe the tears away. And I, I wouldn't know how to lyrically perhaps put some of that experience into into play but i have a feeling that maybe a, a melody could could kind of get close to to sharing some of that inner feeling that i that i've had to be able to kind of express that but i don't know lyrically how i would be able to do that lyrics are the are the hardest part of my life i mean i can write melodies and 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 i you know that's you know and i love i love that process but it's the lyrics that seem to be the part that that becomes the, the, the hardest part. I'm the most hardest on, actually. I'm, I'm very critical about when I listen to songwriters. I, I can see through a lot of other parts of their life, and I really like to hear the lyrics first. I'm a lyric guy, you know? Yeah. And, you know, as Brian and I were talking about um, all these different uh, categories of musical setting that uh, you employ in order to uh, deliver your melodies and your your lyrics that are that are very idiomatic. But the the, the, the essential thread in all of it is um, your sense of melody, which I find incredibly charismatic and, and magnetic um, in a way that that draws you in and makes you feel like you know the person who's singing to you. And I think that's very unique. Thanks. I I you know there's a simplicity I suppose because I have unlearned so much um there was such a big gap between me jumping on the neck of my classical guitar at the age of 12 or 13 to to picking it back up later um when I discovered 
the music of James Taylor. When I discovered the music of James Taylor, um, I had picked up a hitchhiker and he asked me about who I liked and I really couldn't say I wasn't listening to a lot of music. Um, but he had told me we should come over and listen to James Taylor. And I, I think I might've known a hit or two of his, but I wasn't familiar with, with the earlier works like Mudslide Slim and the Blue Horizon or One Man Dog or Sweet yeah. Baby James. And so when I really found this music that spoke to me lyrically, lyrically, it was, um, it was a definite moment in my life where I, I kind of started to focus less on the books and, and, and the studying of, of, of birds and, and becoming more enamored with learning to play James Taylor songs and learning to play James Taylor's music and learning to sing like James Taylor. Um, and that would be kind of a very formative years of my, of my life. I was able to play perhaps his entire earlier collection start <laughs> to finish. Um, and, and that was kind of a, a, a a moment where I, I actually got hired um, at the little little um, little restaurant um, by my house to come and play because the owner was a James Taylor fan. And I used to go into that bar and I'd talk to the bartender about James Taylor <laughs> as if he was a friend of mine. And <laughs> and the, the, the owner was like, well, do you play James Taylor? And I said, yes. And so I brought my guitar down and played him. And then I got hired on the spot to sit in the corner playing nothing but really James Taylor songs. And throughout the months, I'd learned Paul Simon and then Carol King and, and lots of great songwriters from that era. But I wasn't writing music at the time. And uh, there was a gentleman there one night, and he asked to record me because he liked the way my voice was. And so I, I went over to his little home studio, little makeshift studio, and I played a James Taylor song. And he was thinking, well, what are you doing? He says, I thought, don't you have any of your own songs? I said, no, I've never written my own songs. He says, well, I'm not going to record a James Taylor song. Come back when you have your own song. And so a couple of days later, I forced myself to write a song because I was curious how I'd sound. I never heard my voice sounded uh, recorded before. And I wrote a song called He's an old man on the run. That was the first song I wrote. <laughs> I don't know who, he, who the old man was. I don't know why he was on the run, but it was. Uh, I just showed up and I played this. And that was kind of my my early life as far as recording goes. And so then, did you keep writing and channeling your, you know, your your various heritage and all these things we've been talking about? Whoever I was discovering, it would be. I would just learn everything from them and and learn to kind of have this voice that was kind of a bit of a chameleon. I suppose I could learn to sing. And later in life, you know, when I discovered Al Bowley, when I was into the, my jazz uh, phase, um, man, I, I, I just modeled my voice because I listened to the likes of Al Bowley so much. Um, and uh, so that was kind of the, the chameleon aspect, perhaps, you know, of learning, you know, your idols to sound mm. like your idols. Right. But it sounds like all of your idols were this, this what I consider to be uh, uniquely earnest vocalists in their delivery. Mm. Uh, people like, like James Taylor and Cat Stevens, uh, where there's uh, just kind of a naked honesty to the, yeah. uh, to the vocal performance. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a nice observation, Aaron. Yeah. I am very interested in closing the loop uh, after hearing the story of you stomping on the neck of your classical guitar and having this traumatic uh, experience with stage fright. Uh, how you came to... Uh, turn the, 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 the terror of stage fright into an energy that was euphoric and performative? Well, I had mentioned that I had left London in 1976 and I had gone back twice after I left, once in 87 
and then once in 2013. And to the 2013 travel back to London was to open for Jason Mraz at the O2 Arena. And so if, if you really want to A bigger address, venue than the guitar recital. A lar larger, yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to address stage fright, I think that you probably need to go to that show because I didn't know if I could do it. Almost to the same feeling that I didn't know that I could, couldn't play for those people at my guitar recital when I was 13. I didn't know if I was capable of being able to not just you know, survive it, but to, if, if I was able to, to connect and, and to be able to accomplish playing a 45-minute set in front of 12,000 people. I've had my own little ways of turning in and out of, of, of stage fright. And usually I'm, I'm not eating before the show because I'm vomiting it up before the show. So I know not to eat. Um, so I'm very hungry at the end of the night, if you can imagine. I'm, I, I, people say, would you like to go to the merch table? I said, no, I just want a sandwich. I haven't <laughs> eaten all day. Um, <laughs> so, so you continued, even in, in smaller venues and doing your own shows, you continued to have performance anxiety as, as you went on? Without question, whether I'm going on a radio, whether I'm whether I'm going in onto a, a television, it, it didn't really matter. If if I, if there were going to be eyes looking at me, even loving eyes, not just the eyes of of strangers or judgment, they always felt, you know, I always felt uncomfortable. There was always this uncomfortable feeling of of, of eyes staring at you. It's that sense of not being looked at, but like like to be seen but you mm -hmm. kind of don't want to be looked at. And, and yeah. I've always kind of struggled with that. And I always thought, well, maybe this isn't my path. Maybe my path is just to solely write songs for people who like being on the stage. Um, but I couldn't find another person to play my own songs. So I figured I had to face some <laughs> fear and learn how to get up on stage and be vulnerable in, in, in that sense. And I just, you know, I, I mean, to, to rewind to your last uh podcast with with mr kip winger you know when he when he when he said you just cannot not do it that's how you know you're you you're in it for the long haul yeah. that's exactly that's exactly what i felt i could not not do it regardless how uncomfortable or or traumatic it, it always felt to me i've had that sense throughout my entire career i like to play live but i love to have played live mm -hmm. i love <laughs> the after the yes. moment the feeling of the the even driving back to the crappy hotel on the outside of town like i did it i yeah. did it like that feels better to me than the actual doing of it yeah there's a survivorship um, almost about it <laughs> there really I made, is i made it out of there there is but just to kind of answer your question because there's something happened after 2013 that really has helped me to this day and i've and i've shifted my my fear to some degree and 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 moved it into excitement rather than anxiety and that is something that a friend of mine told me um, I've had the good fortune to know a, a, a painter, an autistic savant named Mark Rimland. He lived down the street from me for 20 years and we take long walks. When he was um, hanging out with Dustin Hoffman, who based a lot of his character for the film Rain Man, because Bernard Rimland, Mark's father, w was the advisor on that film. Mm -hmm. And so Mark is this you know, beautiful 60-year-old man wrapped in a little boy's soul and he says some very profound beautiful things and so we were driving to an autism conference a defeat autism conference up in anaheim and he was going to present one of his paintings to one of the keynote speakers and there was like five thousand people in this giant hall and i was standing backstage with mark and i asked mark i said mark 
I've never seen you get nervous about getting up in front of anybody or you, you, you don't get anxious. And I was saying that for a reason because I was nervous and I wasn't even getting up on stage with them. And he looked at me and he said, well, Gregory, that would interfere with my happiness. Hmm. And I thought, holy, holy moly, Mark. That's great. That is really a, a beautiful thing. And I, I, short of getting it tattooed on my arm, I, I've written it on, on post-it notes and stuck it in, on front of my set list to, to remind myself, just have a good time, bro. Have a good time out there, you know? Yeah. I, I have to ask, this is a two-part question. In 2013, when you had that, that uh, show in front of 40,000 people in, uh, in, in London, did... 12,000. 12,000. <laughs> yeah. 4 a lot of million <laughs> 40, people. Yeah. <laughs> four million people. Uh, uh, more people than I've seen in front of me. <laughs> what was your was your guitar teacher Susan Court there, and was she impressed? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a really lovely question. No, I don't think that she was there. It was a beautiful introduction that Jason came out on stage to present me in front of his audience. He really did hand me over in a, in a, in a great way. And so that really alleviated a lot of anxiety that I, that I had had, but you'll be happy to know that I did play my 45 minute set in less than 30 minutes. You know what? The truth be told, I could just share that I drove from London that night after playing an opening for 12,000 people, I, I drove down to Hove, which is down by Brighton, and I played the next night in this little pub where they wouldn't turn off the television sets, and there was like seven people. And I was telling them, you don't even know what I was playing at last night. And none of them ever believed me. I thought, no, it's just like, that guy. is the entertainment world in, in a nutshell. You know, yeah. you, you go from the, the highs to, not that that was even a low. I actually even felt like, that was a more of a connect. I think I even sold more CDs that night <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> in Hove, you know, because of the connection that I was able to make. And, and, uh, but no, it was a, it was an extraordinary experience. So there's a theme that runs through at least the first couple of, uh, songs on your current album, one hell of a memory, um, right now, not tomorrow. And then the second tune, green lights and blue skies. Um, you know, this, this idea of, you know, you've got, we've got one shot at life. We've got, you know, we've got one ticket, we've got, you know, make, live life, make the most of it. This is what, you know, this is what we've been given. Is that um, coincidental that that crops up in, in at least the first two tracks? Or is that something that's kind of a guiding light for you day, day to day? You know, it's interesting because I have been organizing songs for this upcoming run of shows that I have overseas that doesn't seem like it's going to get canceled now. So I'm kind of gearing up to get excited about it. Um, and I'm putting songs together from many different albums from the past. And there is this underlining theme of clouds, parks, walks by the beach, um, one ticket to ride, you know, one life, uh, hurry up and get your, your dream, you know, get started. There is a, there is a thread throughout not just those songs that you had mentioned, but I, yeah. I do feel like that. Uh, not that I'm a lack of, of finding anything else to talk about, but I do sit in a lot of parks and I do <laughs> daydream a lot. And I'm, and I'm definitely a kind of living in, in, in the moment probably or trying to live in the moment as much as I can with, with realizing as you get older, as you know, like time just is, is a speeding train and man, I'm trying to accomplish so much with what I have, what time I have left, you know? 
time for a real change. Say goodbye to the old days. For your eyes are opening wide so they can see a new way. Now the sun shines down on your one life. Cause when you're dead, you are dead for a long time. Get out of your chair and take the stage. You gotta give yourself a big break and let the good times roll. Right now, not tomorrow. Right now. contrast to, to that uh, kind of carpe diem positivity uh the the album and i look up uh, kind of stands stands apart from that as as, as what seems to represent a, a darker patch for gregory page is that an accurate uh, observation yes i felt like even with my uh, album that i have on the horizon actually it's kind of reminiscent of of some of that melancholia you 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 just brought up with an album like that um there's definitely a contrast it wasn't always you know and it's not always sunny and bright in my life and and that is kind of a way perhaps to you know i hate to say i hate that saying fake it till you make it but there is something to be said about trying to kind of do the opposite than what you're feeling as hard as that might seem and easy as it might sound. But um, yeah, the, the, the dark is, is, is there. And I've also, I've also loved writing, you know, quite dark macabre lyrics with a very fun, happy tempo. There's, there's quite a few songs that I have that kind of are a little bit in disguise, sad songs in disguise, you know, that's always fun and, and interesting to me. Yeah. But they don't get much sadder than knife in my chest, Aaron. I don't yes. know if, if I really did hit that one right out of the park. <laughs> I took the rest of the day off after writing that. <laughs> By the light of the moon My heart's breaking in two On the ground I lie Pretending to die an awful nightmare that's come true The one thing that you left A photograph on the desk A 
of us laughing on holiday, a bright Chinese summer's day. Now is a knife in my chest. Birds sing a sad song. Stars fade from the sky. Like the roots of a close the show with a song called Old Photographs, sort of a recap of everything we've discussed. Find the perfect rhyme to my poem. So many 
Thank you for listening. Craft Brewed Music, both the podcast and the Music Discovery app, has the mission of promoting this music and these artists. We can't do that without ears on the music. So if you like what you've heard here, we're going to ask you two small favors. First, tell someone about the podcast. Second, go to the App Store or Google Play, download the Craft Brewed Music app, and try a free two-week trial of the curated streaming service. For more information, visit us at craftbrewedmusic.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.